Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm your host. In episodes 9 and 10, we had the honor to speak with retired United States Air Force Colonel Scott Campbell, whose call sign is Soup. Colonel Campbell was a wing commander and a fighter pilot who graciously shared his experiences and perspective on flying the incredible A-10 Warthog. At the end of that two-part chat, we agreed to do another episode where we discuss in detail the newest variant of the Warthog, and that is the A-10C. In planning that follow-on episode, the colonel recommended that I speak with a pilot that he once commanded, because, as Soup said, he's one of the most talented A-10 pilots that he knows. That person is Major Ridge Flick, whose call sign is Kelso, and I'm proud to say that Kelso is my guest today. Major Flick graduated from the United States Air Force Academy, after which he did pilot training to become a fighter pilot. And today, Major Flick is an A-10C Warthog pilot who flew combat missions over Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. He is a graduate of the United States Air Force Weapons School, and at the time of our chat, he was a weapons instructor pilot at the Weapons School which is situated at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. For those out there who don't know, being a weapons school instructor pilot is the equivalent of being a university professor who is teaching PhD students. Collectively, these folks are pilots who are among the elite in the United States Air Force. The U.S. Air Force Weapons School is established to train tactical experts and leaders to control and exploit air space, and cyber on behalf of the joint force. These folks form a band of trusted advisors and problem solvers that lead the Department of the Air Force and enables it to integrate its combat power seamlessly alongside those of other military services. The Weapons School mantra is humble, approachable, and credible. Major Flick embodies the mantra, and he graciously shares his time with us here at Go Bold to describe his experiences in training, in leadership, and in flying the mighty A-10C Warthog. It's a great conversation from one of the best in the business. Let's roll the tape. It's great to be in touch with you, Kelso. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, no problem. If Soup recommends it, then I'm all about it. <laughs> you know what? Soup is such a great guy. And uh, yeah, I can't speak highly enough about him. And I'm so thankful for him to connect me with you. So I'm really glad that this chat got approved. I'm looking forward to hearing your story. Yeah, well, I'm happy to share. Hey, giddy up. Well, let me just start by saying, Major Ridge Flick, welcome to Go Bold. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I always start out by saying what made you join the military and uh, what made you pick the Air Force in particular? Yeah, I have a non-traditional reason. Um, I was big into playing lacrosse growing up and the Air Force Academy actually recruited me to play Division I lacrosse and they were the only Division I program that was calling. So I ended up going to the Air Force Academy. Uh, I had terrible vision. I was like 2400. And I just wanted to play some D1 lacrosse, get a good degree. And then I wanted to be an engineer after college. So I signed up for 
an aeronautical engineering degree. Uh, I was playing on the lacrosse team and it was about two years in at the Air Force Academy that my commander in my cadet squadron offered me the warfighter program. So if you were doing well at the academy, they would fix your eyesight. Uh, but the caveat was I had to sign up to be a pilot. He wanted me to use that good eyesight. Um, <laughs> it was nowhere on my radar. I didn't expect it at all. So I asked if I could have a week to think about it because the commitment was going to change. So instead of a five-year commitment after graduation, it would be a 10-year commitment after pilot training, which really ends up being around 11 or 12 years after graduation. Right. Um, so I thought it for about a week and realized that the opportunity was probably never going to come my way again uh, and decided to go for it. So that's kind of how I, I ended up picking the pilot track and getting into the Air Force. Uh, you know, got to the academy at 17. So you know how we are at 17. Barely know what you want to do in life. Uh, you really are just trying to look for the next good opportunity. Yeah. And one kind of stumbled into my lap. <laughs> well, you know, it's a good way as any, I guess, uh, Kelso. Um, so tell me about your time at the academy. Uh, you know, obviously you didn't plan on it, but what was that like? Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but most people that go to the academy have to be sponsored by, uh, I guess, a congressman or, or a senator. So were you able to kind of circumvent that through the lacrosse thing, or, or did you still have to get that recommendation? Still had to get sponsored by a congressman. So my congressman from Dallas was uh, Sam Johnson, okay. uh, who was an old Air Force guy himself. And I was able to uh, get good enough grades in high school and all that to where Congressman Johnson was able to sponsor me in. So nice. I got the sponsorship and then that was kind of the sealed the deal. Got the application in, got the sponsorship, and then I had the blue chip recruit. So I was good to go as far as like, I was probably about quarter of the way through my senior year when I already knew where I was headed. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So, uh, w yeah, what was your time uh, at the academy like? Because obviously um, there's a lot of rigor there. It's it's very structured. Um, you know, was it to your expectations? Did it match up to what you were thinking it would be like? And, you know, what were some of the highlights for you? I say this because part of the reason for me doing this podcast is to eke out leadership lessons. And obviously, uh, all of the military academies are oriented to creating future leaders. So I'd love to get your insight in, in that context of what you thought about that education. Uh, it was really hard. I expected it to be hard. It probably exceeded my expectations okay. a little bit in terms of how difficult it was. Okay. Um, that's partially just on me as you know, I was doing the academy education. I picked a really hard degree uh, of aeronautical engineering because that's one of the top programs in the country for aeronautical engineering. Oh, cool. And then add on top of that, Division One lacrosse was a hefty time commitment, a lot of work, um, and a lot of recovery <laughs> physically from that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a normal day, I'd be waking up around 6 or 6.30 to make it to breakfast by 7.00. Uh, going to class for about five to six hours with a 45 minute lunch break in there. And then right after I was done with class around one, one thirty in the afternoon, I'd have to run back to my room, put on my uh, physical training gear and then make the trek down. It was like a three quarter mile trek down to the fields. Uh, we usually hit the weight room for about an hour, uh, at the start of a practice that would usually start around two, two thirty ish. Mm -hmm. Um, finishing that up around three or three thirty, And then we'd practice for two to two and a half hours out on the field. 
So wow. I wouldn't be getting done with practice until around six, six thirty, uh, and then we'd have to make it up to dinner so that dinner wouldn't close on us because dinner would close. I think it was around seven thirty, something like that. Dinner was closing down. Okay. So a lot of times we're running into dinner. We'd grab something to go before they closed. And then we'd all kind of fan out to our rooms to get our, our homework done. So uh, a lot of late nights, a lot of projects that I was scrambling to finish at the last minute. Uh, but it really taught me a lot of time management skills. I figured out how to prioritize things, what things I could put off for a while uh, or what things I could almost disregard. And then what things I really had to focus on right. and the time that I needed to focus on them. Um, so that was pretty more of a basic you know, lifestyle standpoint, the time management piece, I think was one of the big takeaways uh, from my early years at the Academy. Right. Um, as far as leadership lessons, I would say one of the toughest things I faced at the Academy was my senior year. I was a team captain on the lacrosse team. Okay. And the Academy takes the core values very seriously. So, you know, the integrity first service for self excellence and all we do is tantamount to everything you do there. Uh, and then on top of that, they've got the honor code, which is, you know, will not lie, steal or cheat, nor tolerate anyone who does. Um, and they take that to mean in pretty much any phase of your life. So we had, uh, you know, it's a lacrosse team. So we had some young guys on the team when I was a senior, mm -hmm. they were good players, um, but they got in some trouble for underage drinking. Okay. And we locked 10 players my senior year in one, one underage drinking incident. Uh, where three of them were just, you know, designated drivers. The other seven had actually been drinking. And I had uh, the opportunity to sit in front of all the leadership at the Air Force Academy and try to explain why the Air Force lacrosse team should even continue to exist. Oh, wow. Uh, so I used a lot of the same discussion that I just had with you. I told them, you know, I've learned more about time management. I've learned more about how far I can push my body and push my mind from the lacrosse team than anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was able to get them to keep the program. Um, so it was a rough year for us, you know, 10 players down. We've got goalies covering the midfield position for scrimmages at practice. <laughs> uh, we lost every game except for one. And it was the first time we'd beaten army it was that year. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and that was a big emotional high for me. No kidding. Uh, but that was probably the biggest leadership lesson for me was that, you know, regardless of what I'm doing, uh, the organizations that I'm a part of, if I'm anywhere near a leadership position in those organizations, mm -hmm. I'm going to have to answer the mail for what goes on. And I've got to make sure I'm keeping tabs on what people are doing and keeping people on the straight and narrow uh, and making sure that guys are focused on what we're trying to achieve as a team and not trying to achieve things for themselves. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. I, th I think that's a, that's a key point. You know, there's that saying, there's no I in team, right? And uh, I think it's really important, uh, especially, you know, when you think of like the greater Air Force construct that, you know, it's not just one aircraft, one pilot, you know, it takes, it takes a whole team and it, and not even just the pointy end. Obviously it takes all the maintainers and the techs and the support and the logistics to make it all work. So um, clearly, the lessons in lacrosse and at the academy translate further down into your professional life. Yeah, they definitely have. Um, so as far as leadership, I would say that's the biggest thing that's really stuck with me from being at the academy. Mm -hmm. uh, the education was incredible. Um, I had the opportunity, kind of funny, um, once I knew I was going to be a pilot, I got interested in the A-10 
because I thought the mission sets were cool. Okay. And during my senior year, I had two big projects that I got to do. One was redesigning the A10. So I actually built a new A10. It was about 50% more fuel efficient just using modern engine technology. Okay. Uh, it had 50% more range. Uh, it could go about 100 knots faster top speed than what it has now. Wow. Um, and it was basically just a, a super simple you know, aeronautical engineering project. And then the other one was building a B1 with a Delta wing. Uh, and <laughs> That's awesome. that one, we actually got to take that one all the way through to a 3d model, run it through the wind tunnel, uh, see what kind of increased speeds we could get. If we could get increased range, uh, we ended up going with a Delta wing that had a canard up on the front of it for stability. Okay. But it was just a, a really amazing education, um, that has, it's paid kind of quiet dividends in the background of my career as a pilot. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have to do a lot of complex math in the cockpit, uh, but I do have to do basic math very quickly and efficiently. And right. all that background has really helped me out. And just understanding some of the basics of aerodynamics, you know, helps me understand the different states that the aircraft is in, whether I'm maneuvering, whether I'm high speed, slow speed, um, and it was stuff that was easier for me to pick up on when they were teaching it at pilot training. So, yeah, that is so cool. Um, so, it, it, you know, as as you go through your academy career, then you get to the point where you know you're going to go the pilot track. But um, did you identify at that time? Because obviously you were doing this this A10 project. Um, did that kind of lead you to the A10? Because I know once you get into pilot training, you know, you go through that process before you you identify your dream sheet. I'd also like to ask you about the grad of the Academy because, you know, I think that's obviously such a memorable moment. Um, the Thunderbirds flying over, you know, I'd just love to know how you felt at that time. Elated would yeah. be the best word for it. Uh, it's, it's really funny. You see all these guys throwing their hats in the air and they're all really happy. And it's because they're finally done. They've, <laughs> they've done the four years of really hard work and they know that uh, a lot of the stuff that they were doing just to set themselves up for the future is now over. Yeah, You're getting ready to head out and go do something that's actually going to make a difference in the world uh, rather than just learning how to do it. Right. So it was super cool. A lot of pride in my family and that I was kind of like a, a first generation type of academy grad. Oh, cool. uh, nobody else in my family's done it. So like my grandparents came out, my aunt and uncle came out. Uh, my parents, my brother, my sister, everybody came out for the graduation, uh, which was super cool. That's awesome. And then we threw a big party at the local sports bar and just had a, a great time. Uh, that's that's great, Kelso. Like, I'm sure that they were all very, very proud and uh, and I'm sure you were elated. But, you know, what did they think of you? Like as a family, I'm, I'm sure that they were supportive. But did they have any guidance or, or counsel to you about joining the military, um, any reservations at all, or were they just all fully supportive? I think they were pretty much fully supportive. Um, I think the only time I noticed maybe some underlying reservations is when my parents dropped me off for basic training at Colorado <laughs> Springs. Okay. Uh, I think it was like maybe the third time I had seen my dad cry. So I was a little nervous seeing dad crying as I'm getting on the bus. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but you know that's really sweet too though like i mean i think that's 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 quite cool i'm sure it was it was uh i i you know i i can i'm just picturing how my dad would have been in that situation and i think it probably would have been a mix of uh sadness to see you leave home and and move forward but also um you know cry of joy of pride too i'm sure probably a mix of both 
Yeah, I think it was just that that whole overwhelming of multiple emotions got him. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> no, I think that's. Super- I see him crying, and then I'm trying to choke it back and yeah, right. <laughs> look tough. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> well, you know, I've always been one that feels that emotion is not a bad thing. You know, it's not something that that should be concealed or hidden. And by that, I mean positive emotion. Uh, you know, like anger should always kind of be tempered. But you know, there's a yeah. time and place for everything. I guess. Yeah, there certainly is. Yeah. Uh, understanding emotions and understanding how they influence people, that's a big part of some of the leadership lessons I've learned yeah. through a couple of deployments. Because, you know, when you're in a deployed environment, there's all kinds of things going on for people. Right. Stuff's going on at home. They're involved in missions that are tough or missions that are extremely good and they're on an emotional high. Uh, and you kind of have to factor all of that into how you interact with people and whether you you know bring them back down a little bit to be level-headed for the next mission or if you have to kind of boost them back up, yep. get their confidence back on track for the next mission, uh, it's extremely important to understand where people are at in their lives. And, you know, that that can only be done if you engage with your colleagues or subordinates or even your superiors for that matter. You know, you can see somebody react to a situation or a set of circumstances, but unless you know the type of person they are and what might influence their behavior, then it, it you know, it, it would be harder if, if you didn't have that insight as to how that person ticks to a certain degree. So, you know, I, I'm all for, in the context of leadership, I'm all for team building and camaraderie and building esprit de corps. I think that's very, very important. Yeah. Well, it's probably one of the top things that we do in fighter squadrons. I know that there's a, it's, I, I joke around with my my family all the time. I say, you know, I was in the locker room for four years at the Air Force Academy and then I got into a fighter squadron and I've been in, in the locker room ever since. <laughs> it's just like being a sports team. Uh, you know, we, we cut loose. It's a, it's a work hard, play hard mentality, but yep. now the play hard is mostly just, you know, we get together once a month or once every two months you know, we do our roll call. We tell jokes about each other. Uh, guys can vent about other guys, frustrating them and that kind of stuff. And we just, it's like an airing of grievances. Um, oh yeah. Like Festivus. Yeah. It's just like Festivus. <laughs> I love Festivus, man. <laughs> oh my God. So, okay. So let's shift over to your training. Um, you know, where did you go and, and how was that process? It starts in um, initial flight screening. So okay. because I didn't have a pilot's license, mm-hmm. After graduation, you know, we loaded up a rental minivan in my Jeep Wrangler. Uh, my parents helped get all my stuff back to Dallas. Uh, I had two months of leave in Dallas before I had to show up at Laughlin Air Force Base. Okay. So I did uh, some lacrosse coaching. I did some private lessons um, and then spent a lot of time getting back in touch with some of my old high school friends. And then it was around, I would think it was about mid to end of July of 2010 when I drove down to Del Rio, uh, got all my stuff down to Del Rio for Laughlin Air Force Base is where I was tagged for pilot training. Um, but I didn't have a start date until around, I think it started in April of 2011. So I ended up going on temporary duty from there out to Pueblo, Colorado for initial flight screening. Mm-hmm. I'd be lying to you if I remember how long that program was, but I remember a lot of time in the classroom, uh, a lot of, you know, stand up in front of the class and recite the emergency procedures for the, the mighty DA-20 uh, which is just a little, just a little single prop side by side deal, uh, where they can instructors can grab the stick from me at any time. Right. Uh, but you go there and it, 
it was a screening program back then because it was to see if you could take off and land. They were really looking to see, hey, can you safely take off? Can we teach you enough in, I think it was two or three weeks, to get you to the point that you could land an airplane uh, and do some basic navigation? And if you could do that, then you'd move on to the your pilot training class. Um, so I finished that up, went back to Laughlin, uh, and then I had the Air and Space Basic course, which is uh, a program that no longer exists, but that was out in Montgomery, Alabama. Okay. Um, I wouldn't say that was either a six or eight week program, uh, but it taught us all the basic Air Force officership skills. Sure. Um, a lot of it was repeated learning from the Air Force Academy, but some of it was fairly new stuff. So okay. they teach you how to do performance reports. Um, they teach you about professional and professional relationships. Uh, there are some lessons on leadership because uh, some of the lieutenants you know, if they're going to a maintenance unit, they're right away going to have a handful of people that they're responsible for leading and managing. Mm -hmm. And then there was a lot of crosstalk with enlisted leaders uh, so that we could get their perspective on, you know, what good and bad lieutenants had looked like in the past. Right. Um, and start to learn some some lessons through other experience rather than having to make those same mistakes ourselves. Ironically, the first Thursday there, they had a party called Take It to the Max at the Officers Club so that all the lieutenants that were in town for the training could get to know each other. Okay. And that's where I ended up meeting my wife. I met my wife, Kelsey, at that party, take it to the max. We met at the Maxwell Air Force Base Officers Club. I found out that she was going to be going into Intel, and her school was going to be in San Angelo, Texas. And I was like, well, shoot, that's just as close as San Antonio. <laughs> you know, Del Rio is a real geographical oddity. You're two and a half hours from anywhere. Right, right, gotcha. Uh, <laughs> so it was... <laughs> Two and a half hours San Angelo. Uh, we went on a couple dates, and by the end of that program, decided we were going to give it a try. That's so awesome. we did long distance while I was in pilot training. Uh, she was going through Intel school, and either I would drive up on the weekend or the next weekend she would drive down. So we just kind of split the drive time. Um, but it was funny, you know, that time management that I had learned at the academy. I actually made CDs of some of the operational limitations, uh, the boldface or the emergency procedures that I needed to have memorized. Yep. I recorded myself on my laptop and I burnt a bunch of CDs where I'd ask myself a question. I'd give about a five second pause and then I'd read the answer so that while I'm driving, I could have me asking myself these questions. I would have a chance to answer and then I would get the right answer. Um, That's so I think different. I was probably getting more study time in than anybody else. While <laughs> just because Having some dead drive time where I'm out of radio signal. <laughs> yeah, you can thank your wife for yeah, two and a half hours of study time every every every, every time you're going back up and up and down. Yeah, that's exactly right. Oh, um, that is so cool. So I have to ask you though. Uh, so she's the intel officer. So who's more intelligent of the two? She is. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> the only answer. It's the only answer. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, too funny. So you're at Laughlin. How was that? Uh, it was really fun. So I knew a lot of people there. Um, some guys from the year ahead of me on the lacrosse team were going through pilot training there. So I was able to learn a lot from them as they were going through the program. Nice. Uh, and hearing some of the things that they struggled with and things that they wish they had done differently. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had a bunch of friends from the academy going through the program with me. So me and two of my buddies from the wrestling team actually lived together for the first half of pilot training. We had an apartment off base and then uh, it was just a bit hectic driving 20 minutes to and from each day mm -hmm. uh, with everything else that they have you going through. So we moved on base, but we we're still all three of us just living in a little single story house together. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but we had a blast. I mean, we would, we would work our tails off during the week. And then usually on Friday night, we'd get some people together at the house, you know, we'd have drinks, play games, whatever. And then, uh, Saturday it was back to the study grindstone trying to get ahead for the next week. Yeah. Um, yeah. Brain slab to repeat for a year. <laughs> right. And you know, I, I would imagine that, that your training, obviously uh, this is now going to be what, 2011? Yep. So now into 2011. Yeah. So, you know, 2011, this is kind of before, I believe like um, pilot training now is going through a transformation where they're starting to use VR goggles and kind of allowing, instead of doing like the chair flying where you might have like a, a, you know, a picture or whatever of the cockpit in front of you. um, uh, Exactly what we had. Yeah. We had these three cardboard pieces, one for the panel out in front of you, one for the left panel and one for the right panel. And you'd sit in your chair You'd tape one of them to the left arm of your chair, tape one to the right arm of your chair, and you'd tape the other to the wall. And then to chair fly, we would go through all the different actions that we needed to do by just touching the right spots on these cardboard panels. Uh, now, I mean, they've got like a full hands-on throttle and stick uh, simulator with buttons. They've got the VR goggles. So I think that's a big improvement for the training um, to where instead of just sitting there in your chair pushing buttons, they kind of still have that feeling of moving through the sky and happen to do it while you're trying to control an airplane, uh, which is much more difficult. So I, that's a good improvement. Yeah. You know, I, I can't help but that, you know, I've done some articles on uh, that new training and I can't help but think, you know, that that aspect of technology uh, will probably pay dividends. I, I'm certain it will pay dividends because, um, you know, if you can actually start visualizing things looking more, uh, realistic as opposed to just kind of looking at a, a paper, you know, printed out thing that you've got taped here and there. Uh, you know, I'm sure it just, it, it immerses you and probably just, you know, gets you that much more familiar with the actual aircraft quicker. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, it's the same reason that we have the simulator bays. Right. So that the more time, more time you can get behind the stick, the more time you can at least feel a little bit like you're in the airplane, the more experience you have and the better you'll be able to handle problems if they arise. Uh, or unique situations. Yeah, that is so cool. Um, now, did you start with the T6 then, I guess? I did, yeah. yep. At Laughlin, I started with the T6. Mm-hmm. Um, first half of the training there is all, everybody's in T6s. Okay. Uh, even in the T6 time frame, I basically knew that I wanted to lean towards fighter aircraft, but I didn't put anything past that because uh, at the time it was really hard to get a drop in an actual fighter plane. Oh, okay. Um, they were few and far between to get a fighter slot out of pilot training. So I just kind of focused on one day at a time. What's my next task? Try to do that as best I possibly could. Uh, and then I was lucky enough through T6s. Uh, luck and hard work got me the ability to get into a T38 halfway through the program. Um, and then there were out of my class was, I think, 32. Um, one of the guys was having issues landing the T6. He washed out. So we were down to 31. And then eight of us went to uh, T-38s. So the class kind of splits, but you're still one kind of big, happy family. It's mm-hmm. just you've got guys flying T-38s, guys flying T-1s um, for the cargo and the airlift type of uh, missions mm-hmm. or the tanker guy going to T-1s. Um, I think we had two guys go to Huey's out at Fort Drum. Uh, I think it's Fort Drum is where they have their basic helicopter training. Okay. Hey folks, 
Just a quick note here to say that Major Flick checked to verify the base where his colleagues went to train on helicopters, and it's actually Fort Rucker, so we just wanted to share that quick correction. They kind of split off from the class at that halfway point. Um, I want to say we had one or two guys that went down to do, I believe it's T-34s in Corpus Christi for C-130 training. Uh-huh. Um, okay. So we ended up with somewhere around like 18 guys that were flying T-1s, and then we had eight that were flying T-38s. Uh, and we had two of the eight, I believe, or one. One of the eight was actually a Saudi exchange pilot, which was cool. Um, so it was cool getting his perspective on what his life was like in Saudi Arabia. And yeah. he was telling us about how they do military training stuff versus how we do it, uh, which was eye-opening, to say the least, uh, his experience. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I, I've just done a, another uh, episode where I'm speaking with a... Uh, he was a, a Royal Air Force pilot, flew tornadoes oh. and then uh, flew F-16s on exchange. And then he ended his Royal Air Force career flying the Typhoon. Uh, now he's an instructor pilot and he does uh, does a lot of stuff in the Middle East. And uh, he'd be talking about just the differences of the way different nations train. And he was commenting on some of the guys from the Middle East that would come over to England to train. And he goes... You know, in summer we'd be in shorts and they'd be freezing their butts off. And, <laughs> and I'm sure I'm sure your exchange guy from Saudi who was in Texas training was probably very happy to be in Texas. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, he had a good time. There were I think there were two or three Saudi exchange students just in different classes that were in Del Rio. But those guys they loved going to San Antonio. They would go to San Antonio all the time and eat good food, hang out on the river walk down there. Uh, we were always jealous that they had all this resource available to go do whatever they wanted on the weekends. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I, I think that's a common story amongst anywhere <laughs> that any of those guys go. So uh, yeah. a, lo- a lot of resources behind them. So, um, cool. yeah. So uh, how did you find flying the T-38? It's such a cool plane. Like, I mean, it's just a slick little thing. It looks awesome. Yeah, I think back to it now, and I... I feel like I was flying a lawn dart around. Yeah. That airplane is just super slick. It goes so fast. Uh, It's got those little tiny wings. So when you're pulling a certain amount of Gs, uh, when you're really performing the aircraft, it's funny. They'll talk about, hey, you know, if you're doing this type of a turn, it should feel like a dog is walking on the wings. And Uh that's basically the wing getting some turbulent airflow on them uh, and the wings are kind of just rocking back and forth ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. And like if you're doing a really hard brake turn, it should feel like an elephant's walking on the wings. And <laughs> I mean, you'd feel it. You'd feel that airplane buffet. Yeah. Uh, the only way to tell the difference between like a good buffet uh, versus too much that's causing a stall is that nose track. Uh-huh. So if the nose is cracking and you can feel that buffet, you're probably in a good max performance turn. Okay. Uh, if you, are in that buffet and all of a sudden the nose either drops off or stops tracking means you've probably pulled too far and you've stalled the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was just an, an extremely difficult transition from T sixes to T 38s because mm-hmm. you're still doing a lot of instrument flying. It still is basic pilotage skills that they're teaching there. Right. So I had this really specific memory in T 38s where I was going to do my first out and back and I was going to fly from, Del Rio to San Antonio, I was shooting an approach into Randolph, and then I was going to do a go around and then fly back to Del Rio. And this approach was out of control. It's like you're flying on this radial, 
you intercept an arc that's 15 miles around the airfield. As you're arcing around at 15 miles, you've got multiple step-down descent altitudes before you finally make the last turn to intercept final and pick up the ILS. And I was so far behind the airplane trying to do all that at, you know, 300, 350 knots. Um, I I did it poorly the first time. The instructor said, hey, let's go back out and we've got gas. Let's do it again. Uh, You know, the next time did it much better, much cleaner. Um, And I thought that was, it was a good lesson in, you know, people don't tend to do things right the first time. Uh, and as an instructor, I took that lesson back and I'm, I'm still using it today of guys don't do something the way that I know they're capable of doing it the first time. I'll just have them do it again mm-hmm. uh, and help boost their confidence and help clean up the grade sheet if I need to right there while we're in the air, rather than kind of holding on to it, wait till we get back and then write them up or something. They can just fix it by doing it one more time. You know, yeah. I think that's the right way to train. Like, I mean, you know, I'm I'm not an instructor pilot, but I, I can't help but think that that just makes sense. You know, why would you, why would you have somebody? You know, obviously, you want them to to they've trained for a maneuver or or for a series of maneuvers, uh, and then they do it. And if you've got some extra gas, and you know, they can improve on stuff, why not talk them through it and try to get them to do better instead of kind of you know, scoring them after you're on the ground and be like, okay, well, you did this wrong. And, you know, then they just kind of go away feeling like, oh man, that I didn't, I didn't do as good as I could have, you know? Yeah, that's right. And I think it's, it's an easy lull for instructors to get into, to, to turn more into evaluators in the Air Force. Because a lot of our formal training programs, there are rankings that are important for sure. what you're going to do next. Sure. Um, so in pilot training, everybody's trying to fight to get to the airplane that they want. So it's weird because they're your instructors, but they're also having to evaluate your performance. Right. Um, and I think just depending on the personality, a lot of people trend more towards that evaluator mindset mm-hmm. rather than staying focused on the instructional mindset throughout the duration of the story. And then really the debrief is the place where, you know, I give them some of the evaluations I had and I give them some specific techniques to improve. Mm-hmm. Uh, our commander here at the weapon school, is all about, you know, we're not evaluators at the weapon school, we're instructors. Yeah. So every every chance we get to lead them down the right path before they get to it, we try and take that route. Nice, nice. I think I think that's the right approach. Um, so as you said, you know, when you were training and now you're going through the T-38, uh, you didn't really have, you know, your number one plane per se. Uh, but obviously, when, once you get through that course, you have to generate your dream sheet. And, uh, yep. so sure do. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I would imagine that through that time you're talking with people who've flown different jets and, and obviously, you know, you're probably going to have something that appeals to you, but I think a, a good student pilot would probably ask pilots who are, who have been operational. Hey, what do you think of this jet or the jet that you've flown or whatever? Yeah. It's funny when you ask them, they all say the same thing. Oh, yeah? The jet they flew, best jet, and you should fly that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, true. Yeah, exactly. You don't actually get a whole lot of insight. <laughs> That's a good point. Already, I've already flown fighters. Yeah. Um, so I actually ended up using a little bit different methodology for my rack and stack. Okay. Um, I grew up in Plano playing lacrosse with two buddies of mine. Uh, they were actually twin brothers, but... They went to Army, and they had to do a year at the prep school uh, to get ready. I didn't, so I went to Air Force uh, and was straight into it. But when I was telling you about my senior year, we had our first win against Army. Mm-hmm. 
one of those guys uh, was the goalie for Army. Okay. Um, and he's been a good buddy of mine for, you know, since we were little kids, playing baseball together, playing lacrosse together. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself as I'm putting this preference sheet together, you know, if there's any way in the Air Force that I could help out uh, my buddy Tom or my buddy Nick, I would like to do that at some point in my career. Um, and if I end up doing it in a combat environment, like even better, like I want to be the guy that's there to have their back while they're out there on the ground. And that's that kind of mindset is really what led me to say that the A-10 was probably the way to go if I want to do that. Because um, during that time, the A-10s had been deployed for 12 years and there were deployments still coming down the pipeline. And right. I wanted to be able to get qualified and go deploy and support the effort. Um, the second choice I figured if anybody's going to go help out the army and it's not an A-10, it'll probably be an F-16. Uh, the strike Eagle was on my list as number three. Another one that I thought would potentially get uh, deployed time where I could help them out. Uh, and then the F-22 was my fourth reference on my list. Okay. Um, that was kind of my, my dream sheet going into the end of pilot training. Uh, but I hadn't even thought about it until like, you know, the week that they're due, the instructors are like, Hey, don't forget, you guys need to fill out your preference sheets. I'm like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, <laughs> it's like, okay, so well, let me think real quick. Yeah. That's right. I spent the night with, uh, uh, a beer in my hand and a notepad and writing down pros and cons and thinking it all through. And that was kind of the solution I got to. Perfect. Perfect. So uh, my understanding is that the top students get first pick and you kind of go down the line and, you know, once slots are filled, they're filled. So that's why you have a list. Yeah. And it's by base, but the uh, squadron commanders at those bases can actually trade slots if it helps get people higher preferences. Oh, okay. Um, So it just so happened that at our base, the fighters that we had for my class, it was only an F-22 and an F-16 for the seven of us that were active duty guys in T-38s. Um, So the day prior to our drop, the squadron commander came to me and he said, hey, you have the A-10 as your number one. What do you think about flying an F-22? And I was like, I don't really want to fly an F-22 if I can fly an A-10. (laughs) He's like, well, I'm about to trade away an F-22 to another pilot training base to get us an A-10 slot. Uh, and I was like, okay. Sweet. <laughs> that's, 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 no. A-10 slots for me, that sounds great. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> we still don't even know where, where we rack and stack at that point. Like, we don't have access to everybody's scores. Right. Um, he ends up trading away the F-22. Uh, and then our drop night, I ended up getting an A-10 the number two guy ended up, uh, he was also first preference A-10, and he ended up being a first assignment instructor pilot. So he stayed at Laughlin for another three years to teach. The number three guy got an F-16. Uh, and then the rest of the guys, it was a smattering of U-28, MC-12, and C-17. Um, I think we ended up with two MC-12s, one U-28, and one C-17. So, wow. I mean, you want to talk about a rough time for somebody that's been working hard for at that point, you know, five and a half years. And they have this mindset that they're going to go be a fighter pilot. And then they find out they're going to the cargo world or they're going to the world. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that's gotta be a bit of a kick, kick in the pants a little bit, you know? 
Yeah, that night was uh, I got I you know I enjoyed it for a few minutes and then I I spent some of the night trying to help my buddies off the ledge and make sure that they knew like <laughs> hey you're still yeah you're still flying planes in the military like nobody you ask anybody they're like I love flying my plane so yeah yeah well um, is is there a, I've never asked this question of anybody but if you get tracked in a certain uh, into a certain platform um, how difficult is it or how easy is it, you know, depending which way you want to look at it, um, to maybe try to transition into a different platform over time? It can be fairly difficult, but it kind of depends on your timing. Right. Um, So a good example, one of the guys in my class that tracked to an MC-12, well, three years after that, he just finished his first assignment. And what do you know, we have this massive fighter pilot shortage. (laughs) Right. So they're sending out mass blast emails to everybody in the other pilot community saying, Hey, if you've ever wanted to fly a fighter and you didn't get the opportunity out of pilot training, put in your application now. Wow. So based on his pilot training performance uh, and based on his performance in the MC 12, he ended up transitioning into an F 16. Wow. So that was kind of good news stories for a guy that his dad, I think had been a Viper pilot as well. You know, he's like second generation Academy grad with, or maybe Texas AM. I think mm-hmm. it was Texas AM grad. Mm-hmm. Um, that got his way back into a fighter, even though pilot training didn't give him the drop that he wanted. He was so fortunate for that. I know I've read some articles where uh, they've said that the military has had higher retention during COVID for, uh, you know, obvious reasons, I would suspect that, you know, some of the pilot issues, it's not like they're resolved, but they've been eased up a bit because people have stayed in instead of getting out and going the commercial route and trying to make more money. Yeah. Um, there's a whole task force that's designed on pilot retention. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's run up at headquarters air force is where they have the task force running, mm-hmm. but they've got pilots from just about each community that are kind of pitching in and they're figuring out what kind of things do we need to do to keep guys in, keep them flying military. And you've probably seen the articles that have come out about the bonus increase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they're, they're looking at options for guys to try and stay at, one base for a longer period of time by going to different squadrons right. so that you're not having to root the family as often. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think all of those, all of those um, efforts are, you know, have merit because on one hand, you know, when you sign up for the military, you know, you can assume that you will be uprooted and move around, but um, you know, it's, it's one thing for, for the service member. It's an entirely different thing for the family uh, because the family kind of has to go along with it. Um, and, and it's difficult. So yeah, if, if you can stay in a region or an area longer, or if the military can facilitate that, then all the better. But the flip side of it all is that, you know, if people stay in spots longer than it, um, then the throughput gets kind of gummed up too. Yep. That's right. Uh, it's really hard too when you've got, you know, remote bases that need manned, and people don't want to stay there for a long time. So if people are staying at the stateside base for longer, you're not getting the normal rotations through at overseas bases. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's you know it's what? a very difficult calculus problem that I'm glad I don't have to solve. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I tell you what, I, I was chatting with somebody a few days ago, and I was thinking about what would it be like to be like actually stationed at Guam or like um, Anderson, yeah, Anderson Air Force Base or Diego Garcia. Because when I look at those places on the map, they're tiny. And I'm like, holy geez, you know, if you were like, if you were stationed there, and I, I don't think there's any 
permanent squadrons based at any of those places. But, you know, there's certainly support folks that are that have to live there. And I'm just like, what would you do after a while? You know? Yeah, I've known one military couple that was stationed at Guam together. Okay. Um, and they got super into the local community. Nice. Okay. Um, yeah, good. I mean, the kids were playing sports with the locals. They were going out and doing stuff uh, for like barbecues and all kinds of stuff in the local community. That's how they spent a lot of their time. Um, and they, they enjoyed it. They had a great time out there. Uh, I mean, any of those overseas assignments, depending on how attached you are to American conveniences, right. it's different for everybody. Yes. Right. Um, right. I think that's around. So we did, we did two years in Korea together. I did a year there unaccompanied before that. Okay. And we were joking around. We got back to the States. The first time we're going to get cat food. And in Korea, there's like two options, right? You go in, you're like, am I getting wet food or dry food? You grab it. You check out, you say, come Samnida and you leave. Okay. <laughs> we walk into a Petco for the first time in two years and I'm going to get dog food and something else. Kelsey's going to grab the cat food and we're going to meet up. I go get the dog food. I've got the cart. I go back towards the cat food aisle and I look down the aisle and there's Kelsey standing in the middle of the aisle, just staring, just staring blankly at the shelf full of all these different options for cat food. And I could tell she was like analysis paralysis is what we call it. It's like right. so many options that she just can't even pick one. Uh, it was just a, it's just a funny facet when you live overseas, you forget some of that stuff we have in America. Yeah. There's 7,000 options for cereal. Yeah. <laughs> 5,000 dog food. Yeah. You, uh, you know, in a way being in North America, I think we are all, uh, very, a, we're all very fortunate uh, we are all very spoiled in a way, um, you know, when you think about how people live elsewhere around the world and what they have to, you know, what they have available to them. You know, we're very fortunate and uh, and I, I don't think many of us really appreciate it until you kind of put it in the context or you see things like, like you and Kelsey did. Yeah, and I think it's hard for people to understand that until they've seen it. I yes. think you really have to see it with your own eyes to understand yeah. Some of the living conditions in other countries, some of the difficulties that they're going through. Mm -hmm. um, well, but it's important. Yeah. Oh, I, I totally agree. I, and I think, you know, it gives you appreciation for, for life, too, in the sense that, you know, not everything is the American way or the Canadian way or the British way or whatever way. You know, it's like everyone has their own insights and, and you know, it's a, it's a global community. And I think that's, you know, you can learn something from everybody. That's the way I look at life anyways. Definitely can. Yeah. Um, so so you you got A-10s. Awesome. And then where did you end up going then? Uh, so I dropped A-10s, uh, which meant now I had to go to the Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals. Hey, folks. Here's a message about our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Did you know that Cubic supports combat training by providing warfighters a common data model called SPEAR? And SPEAR stands for Simplified Planning, Execution, Analysis, and Reconstruction. SPEAR was envisioned, designed, and fielded by current and former warfighters. The software suite ingests data from multiple domains like air, land, sea, space, and cyber and all environments, like live, virtual, and constructive, regardless of how that data is captured, and it translates it into a common model. SPEAR is used to support mission planning, execution, and debrief, 
and it enables subjective data labeling and categorization throughout the mission cycle. The result of which is an enriched data file which can be used for learning management, readiness assessments, artificial intelligence, and machine learning advancement. The revolutionary SPEAR software allows warfighters to visualize operations throughout the mission training cycle or during combat operations, and that enables forces to understand multi-domain operations like never before. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, the SPEAR common data model enables real change. To learn more about it, please visit cubic.com. Now, let's get back to our chat. I got a course start date for Randolph. Um, I think I started the beginning of July of 2012. Okay. Uh, if memory serves, that's somewhere around like a one month ish program. Right. Um, I'd have to look that one up to get it nailed down, but sure. I ended up having about a one and a half month gap. So I actually got to fly continuation training missions with some of the T 38 instructors. So when they didn't have a student line to fill, I could go out and fly with the instructors I had been flying with over the last five months. Um, and we would go out and fly formation. You know, they would teach me some stuff that I might see at fighter fundamentals course. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was nice to get some more time in the T 38 and get a little bit more experience in the T 38 before going through that program. Sure. But I showed up to this Randolph in July of 2012. Um, and that was like, Whoa, what an introduction to being a fighter pilot. I mean, everything is, uh, very formal, all like your time hack has to be spot on every day. Uh, so if you don't have a fancy GPS watch, you better make sure you're checking with the U S Naval observatory on the phone and getting that thing squared away. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. you know, now we're, we're starting to brief the missions, uh, instead of having the instructors brief them. So we're learning how to put up the flight brief on the whiteboards. Um, the big thing there is they call it EFPD. So excellent fighter pilot discipline. Uh, which is essentially the the moniker of, you know, we're always on time, we're always going to work together, uh, and then we're always going to call each other out when somebody's not adhering to the standard uh, or not performing up to par. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the exact way they run the program. Uh, if you go out and you have just a, you know, I call it ham fist. If you're out there ham fisting the airplane around mm -hmm. uh, and you're not handling it the way that you should, uh, you'd come back and in debrief, they'd let you know, uh, they would give you, they'd give you plenty of techniques to deal with it, but the, the attitude had shifted. It was no longer a, Hey, we're going to help you along. It was a, you need to perform better by tomorrow, uh, or else we're not going to have time to get you where you need to be. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was just an eye opening experience. And it really upped, it upped the increase in performance. I think people felt the pressure and they felt that grind. Uh, and that's the first time that we were starting to get to study. You know, some of the threat platforms that we might face, studying surface-to-air missile threats, studying air-to-air -air threats, mm -hmm. um, and just kind of getting a good baseline of knowledge before we go off into our, our actual fighter-type aircraft. Sure. Um, so that went for a month. Uh, and, like, knowing that I was going to an A-10, there's a really short air-to-ground phase. So I was, like, super amped up to go do air-to-ground stuff in my T-38, yeah. uh, which was hilarious. <laughs> Because you're not actually dropping anything. Right. There's not actually any like good symbology in the airplane to tell you when to drop. Yeah. Um, so you're basically just flying the pattern and pointing at the ground every once in a while. But <laughs> uh, I, I have to ask: Does the T30? I I can't recall. I'm I'm trying to visualize in my mind a picture of the cockpit, but uh, I can't 
actually recall if it has a HUD. It does. Yeah, it has a heads-up display. Okay, it does. Okay, cool. Um, because it, I was thinking about that earlier when you said, you know, it, it's still, uh, you know, you've, it's a lot of gauges and whatever, kind of the old, old style of cockpits. And uh, it just yeah. made me think, you know, I, I had the opportunity to fly in an F-14A full flight simulator. And it, it you know, the, the Alpha, uh, the F-14 Alpha had a, had a pretty rudimentary HUD. And I was heads down in that the whole time. I'm like, how does anyone fly in this thing? You know, like, obviously, I, 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 I love the Tomcat. So I, I was fairly well versed in what the cockpit was and, and what I was looking at. But I wasn't a pilot. But so I was still looking down a lot. And I'm like, man, oh, man, you know, it, it, it just made me think that having a nice heads up display goes a long way. <laughs> It does. It goes a very long way. Yeah. Um, yeah. The whole avionics package is extremely important, you yes. know, and there's career fields built to making those better ergonomical designs so that your eyes naturally flow from the right place to the right place again, rather than, you know, you're scanning around looking for the right gauge based on what's going on. Right. Right. Um, yeah. You know, one of the, one of the interesting things that I noticed of just being in different cockpits is how, um, and I've actually thought about this in the context of modern fighters, uh, you know, that are all going to like these large area display cockpits, um, mm -hmm. you know, instead of like the multifunction display cockpits, just the, you know, the large kind of touchscreen, like the, like a big oversized iPad. Um, a lot of cockpits that I've sat in and seen, you know, there's lots of uh, switches that have different textures to them or different shapes. And, yep. and a lot of that, you know, I was told that is, you know, if you, if, you know, if your vision is impaired or if something happens, you know, you can just tactilely feel a switch. And, you know, if you're a pilot, you should know which switch you're feeling, you know, wherever you've reached out to. So I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. And I was like that, you know, that's very cool. And I was kind of thinking that in the context of these modern fighters where it's just a flat screen. You know, if, <laughs> you know, and it's just something that I kind of think about. It's kind of like that old discussion about, you know, the, the F-4 that went to having just missiles in Vietnam before they figured, well, we actually should have kept a cannon in the thing. You know, it's, uh, yeah. you know, and there's I'm, a funny joke about that. Um, I don't know if you've heard this story about the F-35, but the some of the prototypes didn't have a gear handle. They had a button. Oh, did they? Okay. Uh, and the first test pilot gets in and he goes, where's the gear handle? And the engineer goes. Well, it's this button here, sir. And he goes, I'm not flying this thing until you put a gear handle in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's so true. Like, I mean, there's some of those. Okay. So on one hand, you got to think, well, you know, a button should suffice versus a gear handle. Like, I mean, it's a matter of what you get used to. Right. But then on the flip side, it's like a gear handle is just so intuitive. Why would you not put a gear handle in here? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's just funny that when you think about the engineers are building this thing and they're like, we're going to use all the modern tech and we're going to do everything as modern as we can. And, you know, you've got fighter pilots that have been flying jets of all varieties for a while. That gear handle was real important. <laughs> exactly. Well, and, you know, it, and that that also brings up another kind of like rabbit hole that we could go down and we, we won't, it, it, we won't, but um, that rabbit hole is that, uh, the engineers that develop are not the ones that operate. So there's always a disconnect there, in my opinion, yeah. you know, yeah, there is, yeah. that's a whole, um, that's a whole 
issue that every community is working on is we try to keep our test pilots uh, as like in lockstep with the engineers that are working on the software as possible. Yeah, they should. Be. Um, it's always a challenge. You know, they're always trying really hard to make the timeline to put out the next software suite. Uh, and they're having a lot of back and forth with the engineers, but they typically pull it off. I mean, those guys are, they figure out the things that really matter and they prioritize the list and then the engineers get after it. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's the right way to do it. Obviously it's a, it's a, it should be a team effort where, you know, a good aircraft design house should be, you know, have the engineers working with the, with the test pilots and everything else. So yeah, you, you get, you get that good mix. But um, anyway, so, uh, so yeah, so you're, you're having this opportunity to fly the T-38 and, and getting some more experience and uh, that's, that's yep. super cool. I'm, I'm glad that you got that opportunity because, you know, it's better than being on the ground and, and not having that extra practice, I guess. Yeah, it was nice. Um, and then I finished that program up, I want to say the start of August of 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, actually got engaged right after the end of the program. Um, flew out to Little Rock, proposed to Kelsey. She said yes. And then we started thinking about it. And we're like, this engagement isn't going to get us stationed together. So I end up uh, going out to Davis Mountain for mm-hmm. the formal training unit. Uh, or the B course for A-10 training in September of 2012. Okay. And my start date was, I want to say, like the second week of October. Okay. Um, so the first weekend of October, I actually, uh, we notify our families that we're going to get hitched uh, out in Little Rock. Uh, the parents make it out. My sister makes it out uh, with her family. And we go to this little conference room in the bottom of a hotel in Little Rock. Uh, and have a justice of the peace show up, you know, read the state standard vows, and then we get married on the dotted line <laughs> so that the Air Force will start working to get us stationed together as soon as I'm done with my training program at Davis Monthan. Uh, so we knock the wedding out on the weekend. I come flying back to Davis Monthan, and the next, you know, Monday morning, I've got academics starting up. Um, and then they, the whole training program at the start is just getting you ready to fly the a10 around because there is no two-seater right yeah so the first time you're gonna fly it you're gonna fly it by yourself and you've got to know how to handle the emergency procedures if they happen right um the instructor pilots just fly in a chase position so they fly fairly close kind of following us around making sure we're keeping the airspeed and and the altitude in our cross check Mm -hmm. uh, and that we can still fly instruments pretty well um and it's it's kind of funny the a10 handles a lot like a t6 so the actual flying wasn't very difficult um, so we could get pretty quick in that training program into how to drop bombs, how to shoot the gun, how to shoot rockets. Yeah. Um, and then part of that being like, I'm an A10C guy through and through, never flew the A model. So we had some smart weapons academics dropping GBU 38s, uh, dropping GBU 12 laser guided bombs. Um, uh, what else? I think those were the big ones. I think we got like one live Maverick shot. That is probably one of the coolest weapons ever. AGM 65. <laughs> That is so. Okay. Um, so uh, the Maverick can be both uh, IR guided or can it be TV guided too? I can't recall. Yeah, they're TV variants. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and it and then they've got the two different warheads for them. So you've got a, a blast warhead and then there's a shape charge. Right. Uh, right. That thing is awesome. I mean, you shoot it and it's like a freight train coming off the rail of the airplane. Awesome. Just this huge rocket motor goes off. Uh, the jet rocks a little tiny bit as the rocket motor pushes it off of the rail. Yep. Um, and then you just watch it 
start its profile. Like, oh my gosh, I better get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, that is so neat. So I got to ask you because I obviously spoke with Soup and we talked about the A10 and his career, and it it was awesome. Like, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I. I hope that, you know, if you if you listen to those episodes, you'll get a kick out of them too. But, um, you know, we were talking about the A-10 and he was telling me about some of the, the nuances of the aircraft. Um, and then we were going to segue over to the A-10C specifically um, and talk about that. And since you are an A-10C guy through and through, I would love for you to kind of describe the aircraft to the listeners for those who might not be familiar with what that variant entails and perhaps maybe um even though you didn't fly the previous one um i don't know if there's anything that you can distinguish to say hey this is what makes the c you know yeah um the the commander when he had to sign off on this interview is like hey i I heard it's an a10c interview if you need some tidbits on what the a model was like let me know (laughs) so i asked him questions to make sure i was still up to speed on the changes that took place. Cool. Um, so I think it was around the 2008, 2009 timeframe that they started doing the A model to the C model conversion. Mm-hmm. And in the A model, they only had one little cathode ray tube screen. Uh, and that's how you could see what the Maverick could see. And that's how you could see what the targeting quad could see. Um, but there were a lot of limitations. It was basically like they had bolted these things on and tricked that TV into showing them what they wanted to see. Right. Um, and then if you go back even further, prior to us carrying targeting pods, guys were using Maverick missiles to scan in the infrared spectrum. Uh, so oh. there's a lot of cool stories. If you read the book Warthog uh, from Desert Storm, yep. you'll see they talk about using their Maverick to find tanks moving through the desert at night um, because it could see in a spectrum that we couldn't see in. And it was easier to find those hot tank engines running around in the desert right. using the Maverick. Yeah. Um, that ray tube got ripped out with the C model. They said that we're done with this. Okay. Uh, and then they put in two multifunction displays. Uh, I want to say they're like four to five inches. Uh, so not a very big screen on either side. Okay. Um, but they're, they're configurable. So you can put different information up on each screen. Um, we can pull up the targeting pod on one and the Maverick on the other. Or we can switch them. Uh, we got the moving map with the A10C. Nice. So, Prior to the C model, when guys got a target, they would pull out their paper map, they would look at the grid lines, and they would plot the target on their actual paper map. And then they would correlate where that target was in relation to other things on the ground on the map. Mm-hmm. And then they would look out over the rail, and they'd find some of those bigger references, and then they'd kind of work their way down to the right area before they'd get a talk on from the controller. Uh, well, with the A10C, now... I can do all of that map stuff as soon as I input the coordinates. So I input the coordinates on the moving map. I get a point that shows up uh, and I have multiple different maps that are loaded in there. So, you know, when I'm zoomed way out, I may be looking at a one to 1 million map. When I zoom in, I have a one to 250,000 uh, and I can zoom all the way into imagery. Um, so, and we can modify, you know, how current the imagery is and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that really helps because if, if they're giving me good coordinates, I can go from, you know, I'm looking between these two mountains to like, I'm looking on the Southeast side of the building that's at the Eastern side of the intersection. Right. Um, right. And now I can look over the rail, find the intersection, find the building, look on the Southeast side and bam, I'm, I've already got my eyes caged exactly to the coordinates that the controller's given me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the follow on piece that was nice about the C model is that 
the targeting pod became fully integrated with our central computer. So instead of it just being a thing that we could manipulate uh, and move around and look for stuff, now I could I could slave it or make it look specifically at the coordinates that were in my system. Um, so now, you know, I look out over the rail, I'm already looking in the right place, and I have my targeting pod, which is essentially like really awesome binoculars right. uh, that are going to show me more um, refined detail on what I'm looking at on one of my multifunction displays. Right. Um, right. And that was a, I mean, it's just a huge efficiency increase in the time that we get targeting information to the time that, you know, we're eyes on it. We can start generating weapon solutions and get to a spot where we can either roll in or drop a bomb on it. Mm -hmm. Um, I would imagine that one of the other benefits of having all of that integrated is some of the more modern munitions, you know, the GPS guided munitions, for example. Um, yeah. You could probably just then easily pass the coordinates over to the, to the bomb. Right. And That's right. we couldn't even carry them before the C model. Right. So on the A model, they can only carry the laser guided bombs. They couldn't carry GPS guided ones because right. we didn't have a way to, to transfer the information. Yeah. So, yeah. Now that opened up GPS guided munitions, um, which is obviously a, a huge game changer. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the things that you can do with GPS guided that you just can't pull off with laser guided bombs. Right. Um, so fast forward to 2013. Sure. Um, yeah. Right as I finished the B course, they come out with the helmet mounting queuing system. Ah, uh, I was going to ask. Yeah. The 10 community goes with the Scorpion. Oh, um, okay. And Scorpion is the monocle. So instead right. of having the Jehemic with things to display on the visor. I've got a monocle that I can rotate out away from my eye if I don't want to use it, or I can have it in front of my eye. Um, and it's just one button push to turn it on or turn it off. So if I don't want the information, but I'm okay with looking through the glass, I just turn it off with my OTAS. Okay. Um, but it takes everything I've got in my moving map and it displays it in real time where I should expect to see it. So now if I update a threat location and then I turn on my, uh, my helmet mounted sight, I can look out over the rail and I can see on the ground where that threat is. And I can get a lot more situational awareness very quickly. Um, data link is the other thing that the C model enabled. Mm. So uh, that got us to a situational awareness data link, uh, which at the time was mostly just A10s. Uh, we thought the army was going to go the saddle route with their data link, okay. which is why we went the saddle route sure. instead of link 16. Okay. Um, but we've since then figured out that uh, we can use what's called a gateway and we can get integrated into the Link 16 picture as well. So, I mean, okay. you'd add in when our blue escort fighters are targeting red air and they're using data link, like I can turn on my helmet mounted sight and I can see exactly where they're targeting to. I can see my blue players, even if my eyeball can't see them, I at least have awareness of where they're at. Uh, I have awareness of any red players that are out there. So it was just a massive increase for situational awareness when we got the C model and then progressed into the helmet mounted site. That's um, awesome. And that helmet mounted site also gave us a new capability with the targeting pod, oh, uh, which is kind of where we, we make our money as A-10 pilots is that a lot of other fighter pilots spend a lot of time manipulating radars, manipulating targeting pods, mm -hmm. uh, and doing things heads down. Mm -hmm. Well, we're kind of known for being the eyes over the rail people. So we take in the, the full 160 degree field of view of what our eyeballs can see. And then we're low enough and we're close enough that we can break out things that, you know, from other fighter altitudes or at other fighter airspeeds, it's just harder to see mm -hmm. uh, the helmet mounted sight. Now, if I see something, I'm like, man, I want to see what that really is. I'm a little too far away or whatever. 
I can slave my targeting pod to a, a spot off of the helmet mounted site. And then I can look in the screen and see, okay, I was looking at a vehicle. I want to see what type of vehicle it is. Now I get the targeting pod on. I go, oh, it's an APC or, oh, it's a tank. Right. Uh, and I can get much more specific fidelity on what those things are on the ground uh, than I ever could in an A model. That's awesome. Wow. It, it, you know, it, it just sounds like it's it's so much more a robust user-friendly system and just more connected. You know, just like you said, the the situational awareness is just heads and tails better than, than the previous version, obviously. Yep, it is. Uh, it is like a totally different airplane. I like to call it, we're a first-gen fighter, but we've got Gen 4++ avionics. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Maybe that'll be the title of this of this episode. <laughs> Yeah, that's perfect. It's kind of funny because we've had a bunch of A-10 guys go to the F-35 um, and they'll even reference like the the avionics system in the A-10 is very similar. Like it's not a very difficult transition for them. Mm. Uh, the big thing is the stuff that you already know about with the touchscreen. Like that's right. just a new thing for them to figure out. And then the tactics are wildly different, obviously. But, you know, if they can learn how to be an A-10 tactician, they can learn how to be a tactician in anything. Sure. Uh, is kind of the motto. Sure. Well, you know, it's funny. It gives me pause to think in terms of the A-10 F-35. The next comment I'm going to say is not to disparage the F-35 in any way. It's just that, you know, I know that the F-35 was designed and and touted as a replacement for all of these, you know, 3.5, 4, 4.5 gen aircraft, uh, including the A-10. And I am of the mind that the A-10 is almost irreplaceable. And the reason why I say that is, you know, there is that, um, there is the effect that I know from having talked with army guys on the ground, like, you know, the, the, the two colleagues that, or friends of yours that you mentioned that, that, you know, you wanted to support, um, that just having an aircraft down low, hearing it, um, knowing it's there in the regime that you guys do fly the A-10, um, has meaning as opposed to an F-35 that would typically be higher up. Yeah. And I mean, airplanes aside, it all depends on the fight. So there are some fights that you might say, I'd rather have an A-10. And there's other fights where you'd say, I'd rather have an Mm -hmm. F-35. That's the big thing I've learned, uh, especially working at the weapons school. And we work with those guys on a regular basis. And really, I think the King Kong is the teamwork between the two platforms together. Right. Um, like the sensor fusion, some of the things that they're able to find is just nothing but situational awareness boosts for us. Uh, and then, you know, when there's too many targets too close to friendly forces, well, we've got a great answer for that with the A-10. Um, and it's it's really cool to see here at Weapon School how those two platforms actually are like force multipliers for each other. Um which is the hard part is like, it always comes down to people talking about, Hey, the air force wanted to retire the a 10 so that we could keep pursuing F 35 acquisitions. Uh, and what do you know, we ended up not retiring the a 10, but we're still getting the F 35. So right. Right. Exactly. We're in a great spot to have the F 35s, um, continue to get after the, the high end fight and continue to provide a lot of situational awareness to the rest of the force. And then the a 10 guys, we can keep at it. We can keep, focusing the close air support mission set, focusing on the combat search and rescue mission set. Uh, and we just now have another blue player in the stack that can help us out. Um, and hopefully we can help them out as well when they have things that, you know, maybe they've got SA and they're out of weapons. Well, 
I'm carrying a lot of weapons for you. Right. Uh, and I'm happy to put them wherever we need to. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and so, you know, it gets back to, you know, your time training at Davis Montan. And then obviously you go through that B course where you get qualified. And then what was the next step for you, Kelso, at that point? I graduated from the B course in March of 2013. Uh, and then in April, I reported into Osan Air Base in South Korea. Wow. So, um, so your first operational assignment, you were overseas. Yep, overseas. Uh, I was the, you know, probably the easiest kill for it because a couple other guys in my class that already had kids and stuff um, that okay. wanted to stay stateside so they'd be close to family. I was like, hey, I'm a young guy, no kids. Yeah. My wife was getting ready to deploy anyway, so I knew we weren't going to be able to get stationed together for at least a year. Okay. Um, and at the time, you could get a guaranteed follow-on. So hmm. by signing up for Korea, I knew that I could get a follow-on back into another A-10 squadron, and I'd be able to pick the location, which would make it easier to rejoin with Kelsey. Okay. Um, nice. So I went out to Osan Air Base uh, and started cutting my teeth as a brand-new, really dumb A-10 pilot, uh, <laughs> just trying to... <laughs> figure out the ropes of, you know, congested airspace, um, really difficult spots to work in, just super tight airspaces. Um, but it was all about being ready for the fight. You know, and that was the big thing is ready to fight tonight in the 51st fighter wing. Right. And every day we trained to it. I and mean, we would go up to the OP airspace. We would be studying the valleys that we were going to be operating in, looking at where are the choke points, looking at where we could get an advantage. Uh, and then trying to talk to the army guys down at Camp Humphreys to figure out what their plans looked like so that we could be as well integrated in as possible uh, and not be, you know, they're targeting the same thing we're targeting. Like, no, we want to be sharing the picture and making sure that everybody's targeting where they can to increase the overall joint effort. Um, and then we also got to, you know, I was doing combat search and rescue missions with South Korean helicopters as the recovery vehicles. Um, I got to be a survivor for one. So this crazy South Korean PJ comes running out of the helicopter and I'm in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> he's got his helmet on. He's got body armor on his visors down. He, you know, he looks like Rambo coming off the helicopter Yeah, and he just snatches me, throws me in the helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> I take off in this South Korean helicopter. I'm like, boy, I hope they're headed back to Osan. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you can just you can just see the helicopter saying like you know North Korea or something on it. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. wouldn't that be a, that would be that would have been something? But so cool, man! Like you know, and, and that speaks to the that environment that you're in. Like, there's got to be. Uh, well, uh, I'm not going to assume you're a fighter pilot, regardless of where you are. But if you're in that theater in South Korea, and you know that motto was there, ready to fight tonight. Um, is there that little bit more amped upness or more, um, more perhaps a slightly greater focus in being in an operational squadron there versus in continental U.S.? I think the difference is it's a more specific focus um, okay. because you, you know the next enemy. You know when you're there, you know that the enemy you're going to fight is potentially to the north if something happens. Right. And you can study up on it. You can really get into the, the nitty-gritty details on what we expect the enemy to do and how we're going to respond. When you're stateside, you may be on, on the hook to support anything that happens somewhere. Right. Um, so stateside, it's always a, a careful balance. And I'll never forget when my squadron came back from Inherent Resolve and I was the weapons officer, I had to figure out what we're going to train to next. And I'm huh. having to look at some of the geopole situations across the world and go, you know, where are A-10s probably going to be 
a factor. Right. Uh, you know, where do I think combatant commanders are going to be wanting A-10s? Sure. And it's it always comes down to one of the standard, you know, pure countries that may have motive. Um, but I had to build that training plan based off of what I thought mm-hmm. uh, and get guys focused on a specific theater. And then if we got the call that we we're going to have to go somewhere else, we knew that we might have three or four days to really hit the books and study up on a different country or study up on a different area of the world. Sure. So, sure. Yeah. And, and that makes sense. Um, so you kind of gave a little bit of a flavor there, but what was it like being in the squadron? Um, what was it like living in South Korea aside from having only two types of cat food? Um, yeah. Well, I was in the 24th fighter squadron, Hillsung, okay. Uh, which is our, that was the squadron motto, which is certain victory in Korean. Okay. Um, and it was awesome. Um, it's a, it was like the exact locker room feel that I had become accustomed to being an athlete growing up Mm -hmm. because you had a bunch of people on one year remote assignments. So they don't have their families with them. Uh, and what that leads to is you kind of rely on each other to be the family support structure. So you know, we're hanging out in the squadron when we're not hanging out in the squadron, we're hanging out at the officer's club or we're going on ski trips. Uh, I mean, we would go to Yongsan, we would go to Seoul. Uh, we took a trip to the high one ski resort. We took a trip to the Pyeongchang ski resort where they had the winter Olympics a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we would go down to Busan every 4th of July. We'd put a big American flag on the beach and we'd get the cooler out. Nice. Uh, but it was just a, you know, it was like your family was the squadron uh, as, as far as like activities. Right. You know, guys are still trying to find time to call back, uh, spend 30 minutes or an hour a day talking to the spouse and the kids if they had them. Uh, I know I was doing some crazy stuff. So Kelsey deployed to Afghanistan for six months during that first year. Okay. And the time difference was like five or seven hours. It was something where like there was no good time when I was awake and she was about to go to bed. <laughs> right. So I was... I got on a sleep schedule where I'd go to bed around 10 o'clock. I'd wake up at two in the morning. Uh, I'd call Kelsey. We'd talk from about two in the morning to two 30 in the morning, my time, which would be after she was off shift in Afghanistan. And then I'd go back to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez. So, you know, I, I may have accidentally fallen asleep once or twice on those phone calls and heard about it for a few days, (laughs) but I was trying hard. She knew that I was trying hard to, keep the connection and make the best out of what was a really difficult long distance, uh, relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, you know, obviously you made it work, which is, which is awesome. But, um, yeah, it, it goes back to what we were talking about before. And that is, you know, just that support structure and that camaraderie that you kind of fall back on, on your colleagues and, you know, your squadron mates. Yep. You sure do. That's awesome. So, uh, and then in terms of like flying in and around South Korea, any other, anything interesting, like, did, you know, being close air support, um, I can't imagine it's necessarily like fast jet guys where you're, you know, might do dissimilar air combat maneuvering or whatever. Like I me, mean, you know, you're, you're a close air support guy. Um, I was kind of joking with soup about the fact that you've still got a, you've still got a sidewander potentially on your aircraft. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, we did we did uh, dissimilar air combat against the F-16s on a regular basis. No kidding. We'd go That's out in awesome. operating areas, uh, and you know we'd have them do some beyond visual range stuff where we'd focus on our defensive tactics, mm-hmm. and then we'd have them do perch setups, and we'd do within visual range, you know, two A-10s versus one F-16, and we'd kind of refine our tactics for how we could defend ourselves. Um, but That's, it was, it's kind of weird. It's like it's such a 
different subset for us. Yeah. Um, I think what you see is in those other communities, there's a lot of competition right. about, you know, who's the best BFM or who's the best OCA guy. Right. Uh, in the A10 community, it's, it's not as competitive of a mindset uh, because everything we do is like a, you know, we're working as a team towards a common goal. It's not like I'm fighting against my buddies on a regular basis. Right. Um, we do occasionally. We, you know, we'd put up air to air configurations and go do basic fighter maneuvers against each other. Sure. Um, and then it's always fun trash talking other A10 pilots about doing air to air when an eagle guy walks in the room and then we just shut up. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I love it. <laughs> oh man, I tell you, I've heard some, I've heard some awesome stories, you know, from the RAF pilot that was telling me about, he was, he, and you'll have to listen to that episode if you get a chance, but um, he was just talking about the differences of the RAF versus the US Air Force and talking about some red flags where, you know, you just maybe think about, uh, about this one line where he said this Eagle Squadron would have this thing where they would sit in the red flag auditorium, but they'd always keep like a seat between each other. And yeah. He, and he said, we as the RAF guys didn't really care. So we'd come in and sit right next to them and, you know, put our hand on, <laughs> put our hand on their knees. And, you know, <laughs> it was like, I, I just started laughing. I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> and uh, that's a really funny uh, fighter pilot tradition. Um, for the longest time, uh, it was called man spacing, but now we just call it our personal bubble. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So now the personal bubble is, you know, you don't, you never sit in the chair right next to one of your buddies. You always give them a little space and some room to spread out. Okay. <laughs> that's hilarious. So I think that's even better where the RAF guys go. We intentionally would go and sit right next to them. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, kind of funny. You guys in the A-10 community think it's, it's kind of ridiculous too. So they'll, they'll sit in the gap uh, yeah. and then put their arm around the guy next to them or the gal next to them. Exactly. Everybody's giving them a hard time. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, you know, it, it, that also makes me think about flying the A-10. So at one point we were talking about how before these modern systems, you know, you'd have to pull out your map and kind of figure out where you were and, and what you need to do. But um, now the automated systems, you know, help you in that regard. But in terms of handling, um, you know, the, the aircraft is still hydraulically actuated, you know, rods, pulleys, whatever. Um, yeah. I'm trying to draw the parallel here because the Royal Air Force pilot guest, he was telling me, he said, the difference between flying the tornado is I always had to kind of maneuver it because that's just the way you had to do it. Whereas with the Typhoon, he said, I could point the aircraft in whatever direction and it'll just keep going there until I change an input. So yeah, it's kind of like the F-16. I think they call that auto trim. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So a lot of the fly-by-wire jets are like that, where it's a you know you point the nose where you want to go, and then it'll auto trim, and the jet just goes there. Exactly. Because it is all it's an all digital flight control system. So right, it doesn't know the difference. It's just going to tell the jet go where the pilot told you to go. Exactly. Um, in the A-10, it's not that way. Uh, but we do have an autopilot system, very basic, uh, basically like three modes. Um, I'm not sure if this was an A model thing or if this came about with the C model as well. Uh, I think it was probably somewhere in the late A model days they added it. Um, but with our flight and fire control system, we also have stability augmentation system. Okay. So there's a, pitch, there's a pitch and a yaw stability system that 
through some electrical inputs, it will help the airplane fly coordinated flight. Well, they did some smart math and figured out that we could also turn that into a really basic autopilot. Um, so we have to engage it when we want to use it. And there's a switch to change between the three modes. Okay. So it's a little bit more cumbersome than an auto trim, but I can put it in an altitude hold. So I could be in 30 degrees of bank, trim the aircraft up really nice. And if I wanted to just fly in a circle for a while, I can click a button on the throttle and then the plane will hold the altitude and it'll hold that bank. Um, Cool. If I want to go in a straight line, point to point, I can move the switch to altitude and heading hold. Mm-hmm. And then I'll get trimmed up, pointed at wherever my next waypoint is. And then I can engage my altitude and heading hold with that same button. Uh, and then there's a path hold. So a lot of times when I'm climbing out on departure or if I'm on the way back on a recovery, you know, on, in an A-10, the throttles on departure are always in max. So I put the throttles in max. I put the nose up, pitch for 200 knots. Once I stabilize at 200 knots and I'm pointed at the next waypoint, I'll hit the path hold. Um, and that frees up a lot of time for me to do other tasks, uh, whether that's getting information from command and control agencies, whether it's talking to air traffic control, uh, the airplane will at least keep me going the direction I want to go while I can do other tasks in the cockpit. Um, and that's one of the big things we train guys to is, you know, when you're doing close air support, you might spend a lot of time holding in one area. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most dangerous times for us are when we're turning. So a lot of times people are trying to execute heads down tasks while they're in a turn because they're, they just feel behind. They want to go faster and do things more quickly. Sure. Uh, and we tell them like, Hey, don't do anything in the turn, finish your turn, roll out, set your autopilot and then do whatever task you wanted to do. Right. Uh, kind of in line with that aviate, navigate, communicate mindset. Yep. And yep. after you can aviate, navigate, communicate, then you can do close air support or then you can do combat search and rescue. Right. Um, right. That standard building block approach of task management. Yes. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And and it's nice that the aircraft, you know, that, that some of those systems have been put in because I was just thinking like, you know, I, I knew it wasn't digital fly by wire. So I'm like, how do you kind of do everything you need to do in the cockpit and kind of keep the aircraft oriented to where you want it to go and just kind of, yeah. uh, you know, it's uh, obviously that's a lot of good. Trim. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of good trim and use that autopilot whenever you can. Exactly. Um, the other, oh, I forgot. The other thing that uh, came with the autopilot system, I think they actually had this in the A model um, because we got the precision attitude control for the gun. So huh. the cool part about that is when I put the pipper on something on the ground, I can go to a half trigger squeeze and the aircraft will stabilize to keep the pipper there. Oh, really? Uh, that's cool. Yeah. It'll stabilize to keep the pipper on that spot, and that's called precision attitude control mode one. And then when I go full squeeze and I start shooting, it'll go into mode two, where now it'll start doing some really minor corrections to still keep that aim point, even though the aircraft is firing. Right. Um, right. And that that significantly increased the accuracy of the gun. That came about in, I think, the early 2000s uh, or late 90s. Okay. Um, but we are just now starting to like do some testing to see uh, you know, how much did that change our dispersion? How much did that change the bullet density stuff that we can get? Sure. Um, and we're seeing that it's, it was a significant improvement over what the A model early days was capable of. Um, so that was, uh, that's been one of the big ones that makes the A-10 gun even that much more formidable, you know? Well, you know, people who are listening to this conversation are probably wondering how have we not talked about the GAU-8 yet? And, uh, yeah. you know, like, I mean, that's that's kind of like the bread and butter or, or maybe the 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 key aspect that the a 10s known for. But, yeah, tell me about shooting it. And I'll say the same thing that I did to Soup. 
The one thing I like most about cockpit videos of seeing A-10s flying around is when you shoot the gun, I actually like looking at the little compass with, that has the liquid in it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I love, I love, yeah, I love that scene. Th- just get all knocked around and kind of like, you know, looking like it's boiling or whatever, but <laughs> it's just awesome. Yeah. The standby G meter pegs in both directions from all the vibration. Awesome. Um, you can't really see while you're shooting, you know, like right. all the, all the gun gas and all the vibration makes it to where like, I can't really see. So, um, typically I'm shooting for about a two second burst. So that's two seconds when I pretty much know, like I'd have to have everything lined up just right before I pull the trigger here, because for two seconds, I'm just going to let the jet do its thing. Right. Um, the first time that you shoot the A-10 gun, it scares the hell out of me. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure they tell you all this stuff. They're like, it's going to vibrate a lot. You're not going to be able to see very good. Uh, just be ready for it and make sure you don't come off the trigger too soon because you can cause a jam if you just like do like a, Oh no. And you come off the trigger. Okay. Uh, so that's, uh, I'll never forget my first strafe, uh, in the basic course, uh, was trying to do a 50 round burst. I made it through 30 rounds before I came off the trigger, having no idea how many rounds to come out of the airplane. Uh, <laughs> and that's now it's something that, you know, we, we train to all the time. You know, you do it a couple hundred times or a thousand times and you can really nail down that two second burst. I think most of the time guys are somewhere between 1.9 and 2.1 seconds on the trigger squeeze. Oh, cool. Uh, and that's without, you know, you're not referencing the clock or anything like that. You just get the feel for it. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it must be, it must like, you know, just that vibration and the, I would imagine the sound like, you know, you're wearing a helmet and what have you, but you're firing off this massive gun that's right under you. <laughs> um, yeah. Are you hearing it as much as, you know, people on the ground hear it? The famous Burt? I would imagine I'm hearing it more. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would think so. <laughs> uh, I haven't been on the ground, like within 500 meters of an A-10 gun going off, okay. but I would say it's probably a little bit more uh, than what I'm, what I'm hearing in the cockpit. Yeah. Um, what's funny is after you do it a few times, like you just said that, I'm like, I don't even notice it anymore. Um, I've, I've shot the gun enough times at this point in my career that it's just a, uh, I'm more focused on everything else that's going on. So, right. you know, I'm focused on getting the aim point just right. I'm focused on getting the right number of rounds out of the airplane based on the target that I'm hitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as soon as I come off the trigger, I'm focused on seeing, am I going to get good effects or is my gun, uh, not bore sighted properly? And I need to start doing an offset on my next pass. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, uh, somatosensory stuff that was really shocking the first, you know, 20 strafes. It's so much in the background now of just flying the airplane and doing the job that all the other things have taken over uh, my attention. Right. Right. And, and rightly so, you know, if uh, your, your whole job isn't to get excited about the shooting the gun, it's about, you know, doing what you need to with it. Right. Yeah. I joke around like for me, shooting the gun is the same as when you double click on an email. Uh, (laughs) what sound does your mouse make when you double click an email? I don't know. A couple clicks. (laughs) I'm too busy trying to figure out if I need to respond. That is awesome. (laughs) You're right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or can I just delete it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When in doubt, uh, when in doubt, you know, select all, delete all. (laughs) Yeah. Or when in doubt, tack. Yeah. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Oh my God. Um, so one year you were alone in Korea and then I guess Kelsey joined you. 
Yep. She got tired of being away uh, and couldn't wait the extra two months for us to get stationed together at Davis Monthan. So she worked a deal with her commander. Um, and she actually got out there the 11th month that I was in Korea. So it saved us approximately two weeks of time apart. Uh, nice. <laughs> and then we uh, spent two more years out there. So they had, um, I think they're still doing, it's called a command sponsored tour. But okay. if you want to go out there with your family, uh, or if you're both military and going to be stationed at the same base in Korea, you have to have the commanders uh, sponsor you to do that. And they have a certain number of spots that they're allowed to do that for. Okay. Mostly just to not end up with too many dependents at the base uh, trying to live in the same quarters. Sure. Um, but we ended up out there for two years uh, having a blast. She um, she was initially working at 7th Air Force, so at the uh, numbered Air Force there on the staff for doing intel. Mm-hmm. Um I was still doing my thing, uh, going through the A-10 upgrades. Um, she actually moved from the 7th Air Force staff down to uh, the distributed ground station. So she was working uh, Intel down there, doing a lot of the Intel collection processing and exploitation stuff. And was, I think it was one year at the staff, and then she did one year at the distributed ground station. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had put in my application for weapon school uh, towards the end of her time there. So Nice. Um and then I ended up getting picked up for that. Uh, we PCS to Davis Monthan together where she got put into uh, the staff again, but this time at the 612th Air Operations Center. And then I was uh, working at the 354th Fighter Squadron. And I basically had two months until weapons school. So I was just doing spin up um, and then helping out on the side where I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I got spun up for weapons school and then went to weapons school from July of 2016 through December of 2016. Uh, and the squadron I was with was going to deploy in January. Oh, okay. Uh, so now there was another guy that was in that squadron that was also in weapon school with me. Okay. And we ended up working out a deal so that instead of us having one of us having to do a full year away from our family, I left weapon school and I had a three month break where I stayed home stationed and trained up uh, some replacement pilots that were going to go for the second half of the deployment. Mm-hmm. He took the first half of the deployment as the weapons officer downrange. And then I replaced him at that halfway point. So three months into it, he came home. Uh, so he ended up doing about nine months away from home. Uh, I did six months away from home, three months at home, and then about three and a half months away from home. Interesting. That was for Operation Inherent Resolve, which was just one heck of a fight. Um, you know, boot and ISIS out of Iraq and Syria was a tall order, and we got after it as best we could Yeah, with a lot of help from the guys on the ground. Yeah. So. Uh, well, that's uh, okay. So there's a couple of things um, to to digest here. So uh, going to the weapons school. So you are currently an instructor at the weapons school, but when you are a student at the weapons school, you are attached to a squadron, and you basically go to weapons school, kind of like you know, to use an example that most people would know, it's like going to Top Gun, right? Yep. Right. Yeah. It's exactly like uh, going to Top Gun, but our program's a little longer. Obviously, it's better than Top Gun. Yes, obviously. Uh, yeah. I, just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, we actually work with the Top Gun guys uh, a decent bit when we get into our integration phase here. Okay. Um, we have some EA-18 and some FA-18 uh, Top Gun guys that are out doing integration missions with us. Nice. Um, nice. And so, so, so would those guys be doing stuff out of Fallon, or would they actually come into Nellis and work with you guys? I've seen both iterations. I've seen guys that uh, we do like teleconferences for mission planning. They fly out of Fallon, fly in the mission, mm-hmm. and then they go back, land at Fallon, and send their data in. And then uh, 
I've also seen them. They come out, they take part in the mission planning in person. Uh, they execute the mission, land here, come back, we debrief. And when they do that, they'll usually come out for a week or two um, and they'll rotate a couple other guys through. Right. Okay. Gotcha. So what was it like, you know, you being selected or getting picked up for weapon school, you know, that's, I would imagine that's a feather in your cap, uh, without, without doubt, you know, that's awesome that you got, you got that opportunity. Um, what was that like? Because I'm, I'm kind of thinking back to when you said, uh, you were doing introduction to fighter fundamentals where it was like full on, you know, it was kind of like amped up from what you had previously, previously experienced. I'm wondering yep. if, I'm wondering if the weapon school was a similar kind of amped upness. It absolutely was. Uh, when I found out that I had been selected, I was excited. I was terrified. I was anxious. Uh, I was like sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, because, you know, everything you hear out in the combat air forces is like, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do in right. your career. Right. Um, and sure enough, like it is a hard program. It is, it is not for the faint of heart. It is not for people that are only partly committed. Uh, it is a full five and a half month. Like this is your life. We're going to teach you everything we possibly can and give you as much experience in five and a half months as anybody could ever get. So um, cool. and that's how we, we make guys experts in their own aircraft first. So okay. about the first three months of the program, uh, we create a 10 experts. They can, they know everything there is to know about the A-10. They handle the airplane better than anybody out in the regular community just based on the reps we give them. Okay. Um, and then we make them close air support experts. Mm -hmm. So after we've taught them the best ways to drop bombs, shoot gun, uh, do tactical maneuvering as a formation, we teach them the best ways to support the ground commanders in 10 and make sure that, you know, number one objective for every close air support mission is to support the ground force commanders in 10 uh, in the best way that we can. Um, and then – after we teach them closer support for about seven weeks, we go into teaching them uh, combat search and rescue for about three weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you'll, if you read any of uh, stories about the Sandys, yep. uh, the A-10 community still carries the Sandy mission set of combat search and rescue. So we go out, we'll find the survivor, we'll protect them from people trying to capture them. Uh, we'll protect the helicopters on their way in uh, or whatever recovery vehicle we have. You know, mm -hmm. we've done training with sending guys out in trucks to pick them up. Sure. Um, and then we protect them on the way out. So they get three weeks of that. Uh, and then they get a, there's two weeks of Ford air control airborne and it's mixed in. Um, we'll typically do a large force exercise on, uh, I think it's the national training center. We call it NTC all the time. Right. Um, green flag West. Uh, if you've ever heard of that exercise, I have, so, you know, they plop down an army battalion or an army brigade out in the middle of the desert. Uh, and they're fighting against a red army, uh, that's made up of vehicles that are a mix of actual APCs and like <laughs> sedans that have stuff <laughs> built around them to make them look like tanks. Sure. Uh, as the army is doing their laser war, we're also pitching in uh, and trying to help out. Um, so they get a week of that. They get a week where we do Ford air control off station, uh, where the students will actually get to control live artillery rounds. Oh, so they'll, okay. they'll learn how to pass a fire mission. Um, they'll learn what the effects of artillery look like. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, they'll get a chance to do some adjust fire. So they'll actually tell the guns, you know, drop 50 to make the round hit 50 meters shorter, or add 50, whatever. Right. Um, 
And then we get into our integration phase. So they'll go into a week of uh, academics where they're going to learn about all of the blue asset capabilities. So they learn about what the F-22s can do, what the F-35s can do. They learn all that stuff. Uh, and then we start doing large force exercise missions all together. Um, and it's uh, all kinds of smattering of missions. Um, our guys are mostly going to be focused in the uh, like dynamic targeting, combat search and rescue missions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have a couple of really big close air support balls that our squadron runs um, where, you know, we'll pack 50 airplanes into a lane uh, and we'll be Winchestering all the airplanes or, basically using up all the munitions that are available to us in support of a uh, ground commander pushing with his forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they get their patch. Uh, once they finish integration phase, uh, we'll slap the patch on their arm, uh, make them weapons officers and send them out in the air force. And it's, um, you know, the big thing you'll hear is humble, credible, approachable. And I, I always tell the guys, you know, you walk in a room with the weapon school patch, the assumption is that you're credible. Uh, the humble and approachable is something that they have to have. They have to build it in themselves. They have to make sure they don't turn people off by being short with answers or, you know, being overly aggressive towards folks. Um, yeah. And that's some of the more uh, we get like a day to two days at last week to make sure that all the training and all the academics and, you know, we've made them these great fighter pilots that understand all the Air Force capabilities. Mm-hmm. We also have to make sure that we keep them in check. And it's, you know, one last ego check to let them know, like, hey, you're about to go lead a squadron tactically. Uh, You know, they're not going to go out to be a squadron commander right away. But when people need answers about how to solve a problem, they're going to be the ones that come up with that answer. Right. Uh, Right. Really interesting. To kind of wrap up our discussion, we haven't talked about going into combat yet. We'll talk about some of that stuff and then coming back to the school to be an instructor and um, just some other kind of, you know, follow-up stuff about the A10C and we should be good. That sounds great, man. Happy to help. Sweet. Thanks. Really appreciate it. It's been a wonderful chat. I really enjoyed it. You take care of yourself. Have a great day. All right, Jody. Will do. Thanks, man. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner. <laughs>